This podcast is supported by VEPLA, Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. Welcome to the Planning Exchange, where we interview built environment professionals who are doing interesting work beyond the ordinary. I'm Jess Noonan, and I'm joined by my colleague, Peter Jewell. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Stefan Grunert, a registered psychologist with more than 18 years of experience in the drug and alcohol sector as a clinician, researcher, and manager. He's currently the CEO of Odyssey House in Victoria and the immediate past president of the Victorian Alcohol and Other Drug Association. Stefan has worked as a senior counsellor in a range of settings and has conducted research on alcohol use, treatment effectiveness, intimacy, family work and fathers. We will be speaking with Stefan about Odyssey House and the good work that they do, but also about the delicate nature of town planning associated with drug and alcohol rehabilitation centres and other similar facilities. There are many misconceptions and, and many misunderstandings about addiction generally and the facilities that help to rehabilitate these patients, and they often end up heavily contested at VCAT with many opposing submissions. Welcome to the show, Stefan. Thanks, Jess. Great to be here. Um, Stefan, can you tell us a little bit, our listeners, a, a little bit about Odyssey House, please? Sure. So the Odyssey House was founded in New York, in the USA, actually, in uh, 1966. And it was established as a residential rehabilitation program for people with drug and alcohol addictions. Uh, so that's over 50 years ago. And at the time, it was a reaction to a, a medical model for treating people with addictions. Uh, and uh, the founder, Judy-Ann Denson-Gerber, was a psychiatrist. And she believed that we could actually help people um, better if we, as experts, didn't think we had all the, the magic ingredients and that the people who were going through their journey to recovery were actually... Um, you know, significant partners in the program. So she moved it out of a hospital setting into a into a building in the centre of Manhattan. And uh, following that, a uh, number of other Odyssey houses were established uh, across the US uh, and eventually came to Australia in the late 70s. And so the, the Victorian Odyssey House uh, was established in 1979. And just like those... Uh, uh, founded originally in the USA. Um, we work with people with drug and alcohol problems, um, but we not only have uh, residential programs, we have many community-based and home-based programs and school-based programs as well. And can you tell us a little bit about your role with Odyssey House as the CEO? Yeah, so I actually started at Odyssey about um, 20 years ago as a as a student. I was actually on placement as a as a psychology student and I fell in love with just the diversity of the the different the, the different people there the sorts of issues they were bringing and the holistic approach that um, Odyssey brought to the way we worked with people uh, and I, I worked in a few different roles um, after that I worked uh, with parents with addictions and their children uh, many of those in home settings uh, I worked in some research and evaluation roles and management roles. Um, and for the last 15 years, I've been uh, the CEO there. And we've grown considerably over those last probably five to 10 years in particular. Uh, and so we've got a lot more programs than when I first started. And, and Stefan, uh, Odyssey run a number of programs. 
Can you give our listeners a brief overview of these programs? And can you explain in simple terms what a therapeutic approach is? Sure. So Odyssey, as I mentioned, is probably most well known for our residential rehabilitation programs. And that's where uh, people with, with problems that have been ongoing and they've tried all sorts of different things will come and uh, stay on, on one of our sites. And we have uh, four of those programs around uh, Victoria, some in, in Melbourne, in, um, in the middle or close to the city and some right out in regional areas. Uh, and in addition to that, we have a number of community programs. Uh, some are prevention type programs or counseling programs in schools. We do youth outreach. We do uh, standard sort of counseling, financial counseling. Uh, we work around a whole lot of other issues that are going on for people. So that's their mental health issues, family violence, uh, and a lot of parenting and child issues that come along with that. So we try and take a, a family approach wherever possible and, and uh, support the whole family. And each year we work with around about 16,000 Victorians uh, and many of them do particularly well and go on to leave fulfilling lives and others you know we hope we've we've um, we've supported them or helped them a little bit along that journey to recovery which for many people can take quite a long time. 16,000 um, patients seems like a, a very high number I was just wondering is there sort of a typical um, duration in which you would be involved in 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 one of these programs? Well, it really depends. If if you're coming to one of our residential programs, the average length of stay is around about four months. Uh, but some people, you know, will come for a day or two and think it's not for them, and other people will stay more than a year, um, particularly if there's a lot of issues in their lives they're trying to sort out. Uh, but in our community-based programs, it it may be that someone just dips their toe in the water, has a bit of an assessment with us and might do a little bit of counselling or attend a day program. Or, um, you know, we have contact with them in the school for a few sessions. So it, it really depends on the type of program they come to. And I mm. guess in terms, Peter, of uh, of your question around the therapeutic approach, I guess fundamentally, uh, we believe that um, at the heart of many people's issues is their difficulty in establishing and then maintaining really positive, healthy relationships. So our therapeutic approach really tries to engage them as human beings with all of the things that have happened to them on their journey so far, uh, and in particular, looks at where their relationships have failed and tries to build up the all the building blocks that that make up a positive healthy relationship and that's everything from communication problem solving skills managing your emotions when there's conflicts uh, and we find that if we get that part right for people then uh, many other things in their lives just fall into place now, uh, Stephen, wait, wait, oh, sorry, Pete. You go. So I was, I was going to say, Jess, I should say to the listeners that I've, I've actually done planning work for Odyssey House. So a bit of a disclosure from me. But, um, Stefan, a, a typical um, patron or user of your services, perhaps people have um, 
cons- um, you know, uh, ideas about who has drug or alcohol issues. Um, is there a typical person who uses your services or is that wrong? Is it, it kind of yes and no, I think. the um, In some sense, every single person who comes to seek help from us, you know, brings their own unique set of experiences and they certainly come from all walks of life. Um, we've got many people who identify as LGBTQI. Uh, there's many people from uh, different cultural backgrounds. We have some people, uh, you know, come from very wealthy families. Um, many have uh, employment or have had employment in the past, um, but certainly there's an overrepresentation of First Nations people, and certainly an overrepresentation of people with with backgrounds from you know poorer parts of um, of Melbourne and and country Victoria. So certainly a lot of diversity there, but but many of them have some common things, um, as I mentioned before relationship problems and and many of those go back to you know very early in their lives and and in particular trauma and that might be from a whole range of things like sexual abuse family violence sometimes it's an adoption or or um, family breakdowns uh, and it might just be an absent parent who um, you know wasn't very present for them in their childhood so those those things tend to be fairly common with people somewhere in their life. You'll find a, a traumatic experience or event or some some part of their identity that they're struggling with. Now, Stefan, we're we're treating this interview, I guess, as a bit of an education piece as well for um, for our listeners. So, another question we had for you is, I guess, what what's the general um, public misunderstanding about addiction? Um, some people would say or believe that it's an example um, for a lack of willpower, for example. That's a common thing that is often said about addiction. Um, can you give us some some of your thoughts and I guess some education around that? Yeah, well, I think uh, a lot of people have a very diverse views on this topic, even amongst those who work in the field. And I guess at the heart of your question is whether whether addiction's a choice that people make um, or whether this is something that people are sort of powerless over. And I think it's probably fair to say that that most people who work in the sector, who work in this field, uh, accept that you know, there's always some level of choice in, in people's lives, but um, any individual's choices are, are very different from someone else and certainly no one chooses addiction, no one chooses to grow up um, to suffer the sorts of things that that people coming to seek our help go through. So whilst, you know, individual, on an individual occasion, someone might say, well, you know, I'm, I've got all these memories from my childhood flooding back and I just can't manage or I'm overwhelmed with those feelings that that brings up for me. I'm going to take something today which takes away that pain or, or makes me feel good for one night. I'm sure that's a choice, but you know, those individual choices can build up to a, a pattern that um, someone finds themselves in a, in a situation where things are getting worse for them, not better. Um, and they feel really out of control being able to make any other choices. And so for some people, you know, whether it's smoking or any sort of a, a habit that people pick up, some people do find their inner strength and 
something happens in their life and they make a decision that they've had enough and they change those things. Um, but for most people who struggle with any sort of addiction, they need some help and support from from people around them to to I guess break out of those patterns of behaviours and over time start having the skills, the capacity and the other options open up to make better choices. Mm. Yeah, it's, 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 there's a lot of judgment about uh, people who are in this situation, um, Stefan. And, um, but, yeah. uh, you know, it's a question of, you know, how do the people who go to your programs, how do they perceive their addiction? So mm. looking at it from their point of view, not uh, people judging. Yeah, obviously there's an enormous and guilt and remorse for all the all the things that they've done in their life. They've often hurt people around them. You know, they've stolen, they've lied to support their habit, and they feel pretty terrible about that. Um, and often, you know, to confront that, to accept that you've got a problem, that you've lost control, um, you know, sometimes takes uh, a lot of courage. Uh, and a lot of dedication to really push through those feelings and not just reach for another drug or just keep drinking to um, to manage those feelings. So, you know, they they often feel completely out of control, um, but uh, they're often pretty hard on themselves as well because they feel, you know, in part pretty guilty and remorseful around um, their, the impact of their addiction on other people. So, Stefan, the other question we had for you, I guess, is do people um, mostly enter Odyssey House programs voluntarily or um, is it is it the complete opposite or a combination? That's, a, that's a, a really good question. So, you know, in some ways, 60 or 70% of people, um, you know, in a tick box on a form um, would probably say, yes, they're there voluntarily and, and the remainder would be there through some sort of court pressure because they've got legal charges or or a magistrate's um, you know, told them to go to that program or they can go to prison and, and make that choice. Um, but even for the people who, you know, technically are there voluntarily, uh, there's so many different things happening in their lives that in some ways are pushing them towards treatment. So it might be that there's child protective services involved who are threatening to take away their children if they don't get themselves sorted. It may be a partner or a parent or a loved one that's had enough of um, their addiction and is threatening to leave or, you know, pushing them really strongly to get treatment. Uh, and it could be financial issues or health issues. So often there's a whole range of things that at some point in time become such a strong motivating external force um, that they agree to go along to treatment. Uh, and that's typically what, what happens at the start. Interestingly though, um, after someone's been in treatment for, for a period of time, the, the importance or power of those external motivators diminishes and people start to really feel for themselves that this is worth doing just for themselves. So regardless of what happens um, in their relationships or with their children or, um, you know, even if they're, they're, the threat of going to prison is not there anymore, they realise that, hey, I've seen a glimpse of how, how good my life can be. And so, you know, they're, they're, that internal motivation can really grow and build over time 
especially when they see examples of people around them who perhaps, you know, a few months or a few years ago were in their shoes, uh, who are suddenly doing well, that can be such a beacon of, of hope. Uh, and that's certainly a really important part of how Odyssey House works, um, that peer support element, the having other people around you who are, you know, perhaps a bit further along their journey of recovery or in many, in most of our residential programs, around 50% of our staff have a, a lived experience of addiction and their own recovery. And that really provides some really strong motivation for keep, for people to keep pushing through when things get tough. Well, Stefan, I, th I think um, there, but the grace of God go I with people um, for addiction. Um, uh, but uh, going back to the questions, what you know? What's the wait time for your programs? You know, are people? Is there a queue to get in, uh, or is there open places? Yeah. So across Australia, we know that there's uh, only about half of the treatment capacity that we need to actually meet the demand. So only about half the people who need it are getting into treatment. And so yes, there's uh, there is often a wait. Um, to get into some programs, particularly the longer or the more intense programs. Um, but most people can get a pretty quick response to some sort of um, connection or help or support. And that might be a, a phone call or something on. And for some people, there's, you know, there's, there's many steps that they'll go through um, before they, uh, you know, they're ready to take on treatment. But but sure, particularly the residential programs, sometimes there can be um, six, eight, ten weeks to, to get into that. And, you know, my experience having visited many programs around the world is that's often the case as well. We, we never seem to have enough or as a society, perhaps we never invest quite enough in, in treatment. Um, and instead, we, we seem to have more money invested in prisons to lock people up um, when their behaviours have escalated out of control or, or we invest more in, you know, emergency services and, and the people that pick them up at the bottom of the cliff when they fall over. Stefan, there's been commentary in the past that talks about uh, societal bonds weakening due to uh, far less involvement in things like community groups, um, sport and volunteering. What's the correlation between this and levels of addiction and um, uh, associated issues, I guess? Yeah, well, uh, fundamentally, if, if, if people see addiction as, as trying to use substances to fill some gap or hole in your life, uh, typically around some connection to, you know, other people or to find some intimacy in your life or, you know, meaningful connection to other groups of people, then I think, you know, addiction in many ways is is the result of a society or parts of society that that have failed people in terms of their their social bonds and their social capital. Um, I think you can you, you know you can debate whether overall those societal bonds are weakening or they're just changing. I think uh, there's there's certainly areas where there's some polarization in society where some people seem to have so many opportunities and really strong and important social connections and that that arise of those and other people where you know because of um, 
family breakdown because of social isolation or the difficulty affording uh, housing in areas where people are really patients tough or into you know poor areas where the the infrastructure is not there for all of those uh, community groups and participation in sport. So I think we're certainly seeing some areas of society where um, you know the people who don't have much seem to have all of the issues that go along with that. And certainly for many of those, I think one of the symptoms of that is is uh, addiction to drug and alcohol in particular, but you know there's many other addictions such as gambling and uh, gaming, sex addiction, shopping, food. Uh, you name it, but but often the common thread is people trying to fill some hole in their life, uh, some meaningful connection. So I mm -hmm. think you're right. I think there's a strong association, and and we know from the research when you look at, you know, countries that have uh, a greater disparity between the wealthy and the poor, and participation in sports and community groups, and all of those things, that's where addiction is is highest. Uh, Stefan, you run city and country-based programs. Is there a difference in the approaches? And what's the average stay at one of the facilities? I mean, you mentioned before uh, variations, but um, city and country, uh, different approaches? So I think our, our approach is, is pretty similar, but obviously each program is tailored to the the community that it's based in and and the population seeking help around it so there's some differences in in the types of drugs that people help for so you know in in victoria here in australia we have a lot of people seeking help with alcohol issues and we have a lot of people seeking help with crystal methamphetamine or sometimes called ice um, and we also have issues opiate issues like heroin and and cannabis um, and there's a rise of other drugs like cocaine and many other recreational drugs that, that people often seek help for as well. Um, in our country areas, we tend to have you know, more alcohol, more cannabis, um, and recently methamphetamine has, has made its way there. And in the city, we get more methamphetamine, more, more heroin um, as, as an issue emerging. But our, our approach is pretty similar across the board. Um, some programs are funded for some different lengths of time. So one of our regional program is a, a six-week program and we try and do the best we can in those six weeks and then connect them into other services uh, in, in, in our residential program. Uh, but the community services tend to be the same. And I think, you know, since COVID, we, we had a lot more online connections and a lot more uh, a lot more sort of telehealth appointments and that's really opened up where people who previously had difficulty get into appointments or trouble with transport that's made it much easier for them to to get help um, but certainly there's um there's some challenges running services in country areas where it's harder to to find staff uh, and transport to do outreach and and for people getting to appointments is certainly much more difficult you mentioned before, Stefan, that um, many of your staff and counsellors have first-hand experience in one way or another with addiction. Um, does that is that one of the contributors, I guess, to what makes a good counsellor? And are there other um, attributes that, you know, I guess are, are highly recommended? Yeah, well, I think for us, um, I think the, the the power of what makes has made us successful over so many years is really bringing 
the best of Western medicine and psychology and social workers and all, all of those nurses professions together, uh, together with people who bring their own uh, lived experience of addiction and recovery. And, and the magic really happens in, in that diverse mix of everyone bringing their perspective uh, and and supporting people through. Um, in, in my experience, uh, if you get that out of balance, then, then we're not being as effective. Uh, and many of our lived experience staff are, are counsellors and go on to also um, complete nursing degrees or social work or psychology. Um, and many of our professional staff who come from those backgrounds have also had um, you know, various experiences with addiction. So it's it's not a really black and white either or. It's quite a diverse mix of people. In terms of what makes them good counsellors, I think fundamentally it's your ability to, to relate to other people and be really um, authentic in those relationships, um, to, to listen, to understand what someone's going through and... Uh, to sort of guide them or offer suggestions in a way that are that are credible to show that you're not judging, that you understand uh, what they're going through, but you've got some things to offer them. And I think when that's done respectfully and people bring the right attitudes and values, um, they're going to be really great workers in our field. I think the technical skills are much more easily taught than the attitudes and values that that people bring. Um, so we have people who come from all different backgrounds. You know, we have someone who um, decided to make a career change from a tattooist um, who knows our client group particularly well and can engage with them and, you know, has put herself through a, a period of study to pick up those skills. And, and many people who, you know, at the end of their journey of, of getting their lives back together after addiction really want to give back and then they're busily studying to to get some drug and alcohol qualifications. Well, bless them, Stefan. Um, and in, in terms of the lapse rate or the, um, uh, is that the wrong term about people who uh, no, that's, do? No, that's, that's a good term. Yeah. And, and what sort of, sort of, is there a percentage that, you know, is it 60%? I would have thought 50, 60% would have been a terrific result for people, you know, trying yeah. to, Again, again, it depends what program you're talking about. So we know that for many people with long-term addictions, it, it might take more than 20 years to turn their lives around. Uh, and for some people who are at the start of that journey, um, the programs we're offering are just trying to keep them alive. And, it, and you know, it might be um, supplying them with needles and syringes and, you know, encouraging them to use in safe ways. Um because they're not ready for treatment. And so, you know, for them, success is, is not picking up bloodborne viruses, um, using together with other people and not having overdoses that require, you know, ambulance calls out, call outs. Um, for other people who are attending our counselling support and programs, you know, maybe all they need is a few sessions to, to stop drinking quite as much as they have been in the past and that has a flow on ripple effect in their family and you know that's a success I think when people ask that question about what's our success rate or what's the relapse rate people are often talking about well let's imagine someone goes through your most intensive program um, 
and fully turns their life around. So they stop drinking or using drugs. They get jobs, they have families, have children and, and uh, full-time employment. Um, so if, if you're looking at those sorts of outcomes, what we often find is that if, if people have had a, a significant period of treatment in one of our residential programs, we'd find that about a third of people will achieve those sorts of outcomes. Um, another third will be better for that treatment or that journey with us, but may lapse, may have some periods of needing more counselling, may come back into treatment again. Um, and about a third of people will have really struggled, probably left early uh, and may, um, you know, may still be struggling uh, with their addiction or, or not only lapse, but relapse into sort of full-blown addiction. So I guess we often say that if, if you're able to get a good dose of treatment to someone, then you're getting about a 60% group of people that are, are going to be much better off for that journey and, and on their way to sort of a full recovery. And that's pretty similar with a lot of other health conditions or even better than many, many cancers and things like that. So we're, we're pretty proud of what we can achieve um, when we engage with someone and are able to wrap a whole lot of support around them. Stefan, once people leave your facilities, is there any sort of follow-up assistance or, um, you know, home visits just to check in on people and see how they're going? Yeah, that, that's something we, we definitely love to do a lot more of. And often the funding, you know, of any program is very limited. So you're often putting it to the people who are, you know, really in crisis or need your immediate support. But it's it's really critical and it's, you know, it's the sort of active ingredient of some of the other peer support programs, whether it's AA or Smart Recovery, or there's all sorts of um, peer support groups around the world that, that you know, in an ongoing way, people can connect with on a, on a regular basis. So we certainly do some aftercare programs on a, on a weekly basis, run some support groups like that for families and for, um, you know, for individuals who've been through our programs. But many, many people who've been through our, our programs end up establishing their own little communities of people that they've gone through treatment with. And they hold each other accountable and they're there out of hours to look after each other when, you know, perhaps when they have a bad day at work or they've had a stress, stressful event in their life or their relationship and, um, you know, they can get them back on track uh, pretty quickly. So, you know, it is something that we try and support. And we also have some mentors that come from, all different parts of the community that will often help someone make that transition from from sort of residential intensive cre uh, treatment back into the community and and establish new social networks and usually once those networks are, are developed um, then our job is kind of done thanks for the support from ratio consultants an independent voice and trusted partner in planning urban design transport and waste management Ratio supports change through projects that shape cities, neighbourhoods and places for people. See ratio.com.au for details. And um, Stefan, there's been a number of planning cases and for listeners, we're, we're sort of focusing on Victoria in Australia. Um, I'm sure it's the same elsewhere involving drug rehabilitation centres uh, that have been contested. What do you believe the misconceptions, Stefan, are that some people hold about drug rehabilitation centres. Yeah, this is a really uh, interesting interesting question and one that um, 
You know, it wouldn't surprise many people in some sense that whenever uh, someone tries to set up a, a centre, whether that's a community-based one, but particularly a residential program where people are living on site, that there's always some community backlash, usually from the most immediate neighbours to that program. And it always, it strikes me as curious that, um, you know, if you know that that most communities are filled with people living in those communities who are struggling with addiction issues and, and are actively uh, using drugs, often needing to commit crimes to support their habits, that surely a community is safer once you've got a treatment program there that's actually for the people who want to give up, who are residing there, um, and while they're residing there, they're not using drugs, uh, they're not committing crimes, and you're part of the, the solution rather than the problem uh, for the people who are you know, already in that community. So we certainly know that whenever we've tried to start a program, uh, we've had many neighbours concerned about their safety. Um, they're worried that people will leave involuntarily because there's no bars on the windows, there's no um, barbed wire or no high fences uh, stopping them do that. They're worried that they'll come onto their property, uh, steal from them, harm them. Uh, they're worried that their house values or prices of their properties will be diminished as a result of a, of a treatment centre being in, um, you know, in their neighbourhood or their vicinity. And in my experience, not only from having established a few and been part of that here in Victoria and Australia, but from talking to my colleagues in many different parts of the world, it, it's absolutely the same. Uh, and I've seen facilities, you know, in the middle of cities, in country areas, in old army bases, in old hospitals, on farms, um, sometimes in very remote places. And there's always people concerned about what, what it's going to mean for them. And, and that's understandable. Um, you know, we all we all often fear the unknown. Um, but really, those those fears are unfounded, and there's been very few incidences anywhere uh, where people walk off onto anyone else's property. If if someone wants to leave the program, usually, you know, their interest is going back to the city to to either you know take drugs or or go and be with people that they know somewhere else. Um, and typically, if they if they don't want to be part of the program, we would transport them, drive them or put them on a train to where they need to go or, or give them accommodation somewhere else for a few nights until we organise um, something more long-term for them. Um, if anything, we've probably felt less safe from some of our neighbours at times who've, you know, fired shotguns across our property and cut water pipes and um, and in, in some ways, um, you know, we've really tried to be very good neighbours and we contribute to revegetation um, you know, sometimes program demands mean means that we have to we have to focus on the the people there, and sometimes less on um, joining into all the community activities. But wherever possible, we we contribute to um, events in the community uh, and and try and be really good neighbours. Art events, you know, shows of of baking. Um, we we help manage uh, Aboriginal gardens and historic historical sites and things like that as well. So um, the misconceptions are there uh, and usually they, they disappear uh, after a few years when, when their fears don't eventuate. Now, Stefan, you've obviously been involved in a number of different planning cases over the years, particularly um, whilst you've been at Odyssey House. What have you learnt from those experiences? 
Mm. I think the first thing I've learned is how different one community can be to another. So we had an experience in a regional uh, town uh, just outside Bansdale, which is about four hours drive from Melbourne. Uh, and there was such a supportive community there with some real champions in the community who knew they had a drug and alcohol problem there and they wanted to do something about it. And you know, we did lots of talks to different community groups and got such great community support. Um, and when the time came to actually, you know, nominate a site and, um, you know, put in a planning application, uh, we managed to get the land effectively donated or rented to us on a, on a peppercorn lease uh, for nothing. Um, and we had a whole lot of community support behind us and, you know, almost zero objections to anything that that came through in the planning application. So that was a real model case of, of how well it can go. And in fact, you know, one of the town hall meetings I went to when I was answering questions to the community about, you know, what it would mean for them, uh, one of the parents of a local gymnastics club, which was right next door to the facility, uh, got up and introduced themselves. And I thought, oh no, here we go. I'm going to get a question about all their children that are there and how unsafe they'll be. And, and her question was, we're always short of gym coaches. Do you think some of your residents, when they got you know themselves sorted, might, might want to be gym coaches so we can have more people teaching our children? And I was blown away with you know that sort of, those attitudes and values of that community there. I think on the other side of it, um, I've met some people who, you know, understandably have, um, you know, been established in a community for a very long time and and like things just the way they are, uh, and perhaps have had some bad experiences or, or, um, you know, feel unsafe in in their community and and you know, bringing a, a program like this or anything that's that's brings about change to their community, you know, is, is a real challenge for them. And, and certainly we understand their fears and, you know, some of them we've been able to meet with and um, convince otherwise through talking things through and other, other people have been really difficult to, to, to change their minds. Um, no matter how much we say, look, our track record's really good. We've never had this occur. And, and so often we're, um, you know, putting in concessions and things to try and you know, meet their concerns as part of the, the process. Another point I was just interested in exploring a little bit further with you is about uh, site selection. So um, you've mentioned a couple of different examples there, some positive and some negative. Do you find, generally speaking, that um, integrating these types of facilities within existing residential areas is much more difficult than uh, perhaps looking at a site that's, you know, on a main road or in a commercial area? Has that sort of been a consideration in in that site selection process for you? Yeah, look, there's, um, you know, it's it's possible to run a, a, a residential facility in particular, but certainly community ones in, in almost any location. Uh, as I've said, I've seen them in the heart of Manhattan, in, in Florida and San Francisco, um, you know, many parts of Europe um, in the middle of busy cities. And certainly accessibility is really um, strong there, you know, great public transport, uh, great for visitors to be able to come along and see their loved ones on, on the weekends and particularly for children sometimes to visit their parents there uh, and your access to you know, food and a whole range of other allied health services is really strong. 
Um, but there's something about those busy urban environments that is not particularly therapeutic or healing. And we know from our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here in Australia, but for First Nations people in many other countries, um, you know, for, for a program to be a healing space, it needs to have some strong connection to, to country, to often it's to waterways, to rivers, to lakes, or, or significant landmarks. And it could be mountains, it could be bushes. And, you know, there's a lot of research around the therapeutic benefit of gardening and nature in people's lives. So as a general rule, our preference is to try and find something that's either on the fringe of of an urban area or or um, you know in a in a more country regional area where you've still got reasonable access to a a decent sized town and and country uh, a country city um, but but that you've got enough space and a, a sense of sort of quiet and peacefulness out there uh, that lends itself well not only to someone being able to reflect and um, and you know, have have some space and time to to do those reflections that often go with with that uh, recovery from addiction, but also to be able to participate in in gardening activities or some you know property work, um, maintenance of tree planting, all those sorts of things which have a real strong therapeutic benefit. Um, so those are the sorts of key things we're looking often. Often people are, uh, around the program or the funders want to know that, you know, there is close proximity to a hospital or to ambulance and, and fire services and um, to, to fresh water and sewerage and all of those things. But um, in our experience, those things are needed very seldomly. Um, and you can, you know, you can um, put things in place to manage your own water capture and, um, you know, treatment of sewage and other things on site. So we've certainly had to weigh up the, the cost benefit of all those things. Internet connectivity in the modern day is really critical. And some of our regional areas, you know, we've had to invest a lot of money to, to either bring fiber there or, or come up with some different solutions to make sure that our staff are able to communicate easily and well with everyone they need to from a, from a safety and security perspective. Um, Stefan, you mentioned gardening. I mean, the importance of soil and nature and getting your hands dirty, I, I think it's very therapeutic for me. I'm sure it is for other people just to spend that bit of time just doing things like that. But um, since you've started, you, you know, you played the long game in all this. What are the major changes in drug rehabilitation centres? Um, and do they have town planning implications? I mean, do we know things now that we probably didn't, know when you started out? I guess the main things, um, you know, in the past we had lots of really big facilities that were quite institutional and um, that certainly made it uh, efficient and easy to have a whole lot of people on one site and to, you know, to be able to afford the overnight staff and bring all of the supports that you need in one place together. I think what we've learned is that for some people that, big facility can be quite overwhelming and not everyone wants to come into you know a big city or or leave their local area for treatment so we we tend to make uh treatment a little bit more accessible by having um you know more facilities uh not too small because you know it is really hard to make them viable but uh accessible enough for people in that area that if they do want to 
have treatment close to home, close to people they love, that's possible. Um, but they can also then leave and go somewhere else if they want to get as far away from, you know, the old people they've been knocking around with uh, as well. Um, I think the the main program areas in a residential program are really critical for us. So those big group spaces, the, the lounge, the dining, the, the kitchens, these are all the places where a lot of magic happens in in residential treatment because it's where people are interacting with each other and sometimes conflicts arise there and how they practice their new skills and work those conflicts through are really important and the you know the therapy groups and things that they're participating so you know a lot of modern buildings don't have um, those big spaces big enough to hold groups and have really great interactive spaces so we're often having to purpose build or design things with with large spaces um, you know for many people they're the bedroom is a place of privacy and security. And, you know, modern trends are uh, sort of pushing towards having, you know, everyone having their own bedroom with their own ensuite with lockable doors and things like that. Um, we, we're still trying to push back a little bit on that. And, you know, we have a lot of twin rooms because we find people, particularly in the early stage of treatment, need a lot of support from their peers or from their buddies if they can't sleep or they're, they're ruminating over an issue and, and those sorts of informal conversations and chats can be really powerful for people. Um, I think, um, you know, many of our properties, the, the, the buildings that really work particularly well are the, the kind of earthier ones. So we, we made, uh, we made some, some of our own mud bricks in one property uh, and uh, had a whole area for family units designed. And they've got really beautiful uh, timber and an Afghani pattern of, of mud bricks in them. And there's hardly a straight wall in the building, which was really difficult to build, but they're really lovely spaces. And everyone who goes there just feels good by being in those buildings. So I think some of the great architectural things that are that are just healthy you know access to good light cross ventilation open spaces so you can stretch your eyes you know that's really important for people in recovery and I, I guess you know we go back to our origins there we we try and get away from a clinical as far away from a clinical hospital-like environment as possible um, and far away from a prison environment where people's defenses go up and they're not they're not really open to change there. They just go into self-protection mode. So all of those things are really critical in um, in building design. Uh, and in terms of town planning, then I guess, yeah, there, there's there's certainly issues for, for neighbours around, you know, screening planting where, you know, they don't necessarily want to know or want to be known who's in the facilities for privacy if, if people are out in the gardening and, and working. Um, and the neighbours might want to get on with their business without feeling like there's a group of people looking at what they're doing too. So, um, you know, those are often concessions that are being made um, around a bit of screening planning, uh, planting, um, and certainly accessibility with with roads and other things like that. If if you're having more traffic in your driveway than uh, than normal, just you know, safe entry and exit from your property. You touched on a couple of the, I guess, different innovations or the emerging innovations in the sector. Um, is there anything else over the horizon, I guess, that you foresee might be a key feature in these facilities moving forward? 
Yeah, look, I think we're we're always hoping that science continues to evolve and research will, you know, bring about some really breakthrough treatments. And there's been some great ones around, you know, many of our clients have had hep C in the past that could have been life-threatening for them. And, and the treatments have really turned that around. Uh, same with HIV and other bloodborne viruses. Um, there's some vaccines that are, or pharmacotherapies, different types of drugs that people have, have um, been administered to help them with their, their different forms of addiction. So we've got pharmacotherapies like methadone and buprenorphine, which uh, sometimes have meant people have had to have access to a, a pharmacy or a chemist because, you know, these drugs need to be kept securely and they get daily doses of those. And so some of the breakthroughs with um, injectable, long-acting drugs like that have really helped um, people to not be so dependent on having to be right next to a pharmacy to pick up doses and and therefore can sustain you know periods of time when they're not craving or if they you know even if they use other drugs they won't get the effect from them uh, there's talk of vaccines on the horizon um, which you know at times come across as promising i'm i'm a little bit skeptical because I guess at the end of the day, I, I don't see it as a purely medical issue. Sure, there's some predispositions for people with addictions and you know, sometimes people have underlying mental health issues or health issues that um, medications and other things can absolutely support them to, to get into treatment and to be able to um, participate in treatment without you know, using drugs and being intoxicated and not craving. So they absolutely play their part. But I think fundamentally for us, you know, it's those essential sort of life skills and social connections which help people move beyond addictions into much more healthy ways of living. And there's no fast way to achieve that if you've if you've got a you know, history of trauma and relationship issues. That that's just a, a piece of work that's required and and takes you know can take some people quite a long time to achieve and. Um, you know, some people do it in an intense way and some people will do it slowly over a long period of time. So I'm, I'm hopeful, um, but I, I have a sense that, you know, as, as society, as a society, we'll always need some form of um, medications and drugs to help us manage pain, to treat all sorts of conditions. Uh, and as a result, there will always be substances that are both beneficial for society, but also have the potential for harm. Uh, and unless we continue to invest significantly in all of those underlying sort of social determinants of health and community well-being, um, there will always be a group of people that um, turn to drugs and alcohol to manage uh, the difficulties in their life and always be a need for for people like us to um to help them through that mm. gosh um stefan um it's a it's a heavy heavy workload of burden um but you you seem to you know relish your work um uh, maybe relish is the wrong word oh it's it's incredibly rewarding i think mm. of course the the work is infinite like it is in many areas 
um, and it comes with a lot of, of challenges. Um, most of them aren't around aggression and violence and you know some of the stereotypes that exist. Uh, mostly it's just harrowing stories of people who've been through some pretty horrific things at the hands of other people that sometimes they trusted um, or just really unfortunate things that have occurred in in um, you know in bucket loads in their lives and um, of course that takes its toll and sometimes people that you've built great relationships don't make it and they pass away from overdoses or or from accidents that occur while they're intoxicated so that's absolutely harrowing um, but at the same time we have so many great examples of change where people have transformed their lives and and uh, will come back to us many years later and and just drop in for a visit and say, hey, I was here as a kid or a young person or I went through treatment 10 or 20 years ago and um, now I'm doing this and now I'm a lawyer or a doctor or I'm doing great and I've got these beautiful kids and um, my life's great and you know I owe that to Odyssey or to some other program that you know played a part in their journey. So those are the things that keep us going um, because we know you know, it's really important work and uh, and it definitely makes a difference. Um, yeah, I, I think for for those who work in our sector too, we we um, we have to look after ourselves and, and we have to sort of practice what we talk about um, in finding balance in in our own lives just as much as we do with the people we work with. So we, we have some good ways of looking after ourselves and and relaxing. And for me, that that can be, you know, connecting with the people I love, with my kids, with my partner and and my extended family. But one of the things that I do in particular that I find incredibly um, rejuvenating is spending time in nature, uh, particularly sort of wilderness areas or just going out on my little fishing boat and, and sitting in the middle of Port Phillip Bay here. Uh, and often there's seals around and whether I'm catching fish or not, uh, just the quietness that I experience in those settings uh, and the ability to to not have any thoughts going through my head is is um is really rejuvenating for me. Oh, Stefan, um, well, uh, Jess, we should join Stefan <laughs> on his boat one day. Maybe he doesn't want us there. But... Uh, well, so, sometimes <laughs> I, I have people poetic. there. Sometimes I have people there, and when when my kids are there with me, I'm just, you know, it's non-stop action catching fish and and rebaiting their hooks for them, which I should be letting them do for themselves. But there's always some snag, or someone's lost a hook, or can't get the fish off. So uh, that's a different experience. Um, it's not quite the quiet relaxation. Oh, very very richly rewarding. Now, Jess. Uh, we're moving on to uh, Culture Corner, Podcast Extra. Um, now, uh, uh, Stephanie, something that you think our listeners, uh, something you've done recently that you think our listeners might like to watch, read, listen to, experience, any any thoughts? Well, I'm actually, um, speaking of self-care, about to uh, take my father, who's 87, um, back to his hometown in uh, the east part of Germany um, to visit his family. And I, I learned a little bit of German way back in my university days, but I didn't grow up speaking German and I haven't spoken for 30 years. So I've just in the last four or so months um, been listening to uh, a podcast called Coffee Break German, um, just to try and brash up on my listening and speaking skills, because I know I'm going to have to use them 
um, back in Germany and I'm, I'll be traveling around uh, a bit um, uh, after I visit family there. But I'd, I'd just really encourage people if, if you've ever wanted to, to learn a language, whether you're planning to travel or not, um, the, the satisfaction I've got just from chipping away on, on that in really easy ways of listening to that, that podcast on the way to work um, it's been fantastic and I'm I'm feeling much more confident about um, going over there and being able to say a few words at least. We thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. Jess, um, your podcast extra. I was going to mention a book, but I can't remember the title of it. So that tells you how interesting it was. <laughs> so my other one was actually a Netflix um, documentary I watched recently um, about the White Island volcano eruption. I think it's called Rescue from Fukari. Um, so that was the horrendous, horrendous incident. Um, I think it was 2019 um, where I think it was 22 people ended up dying out of, I think, 50 or so that were on the island at the time. Um, horrendous, horrendous situation. But the um, the documentary is incredible, um, just the footage that they've got and the, the interviews. It's absolutely heartbreaking, but a really, really um, amazing thing to watch. Je- Jess, is, is, is that the one where the emergency services wouldn't go there, but yeah. some private people just decided to give it a go and rescue people? Yeah, basically that that's part of it. Uh, yeah, have you you have obviously haven't watched it yet. No, 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 I haven't, I haven't, I no. haven't. But definitely yeah. watch it. It's it's very very interesting. I didn't know a lot about it, and I um hadn't sort of recalled a lot of the information, and it was yeah a really really interesting one to watch. Mm. What about you, uh, Pete? You've always uh, got something interesting. Well, well, just as you know, I've been to Japan lately. Um, Stefan, my favorite holiday destination have you been to japan stefan yeah I've, I've been a couple of times and um more recently we walked some of the nakasendo which is the old postal route up in the mountains between um tokyo and uh, kyoto and it was fantastic love the food love the place and, and apart from that what else do you like about japan <laughs> um I'm not sure if that's a trick question. <laughs> it's not, we don't have trick questions on plenty of exchange. Oh, uh, look, it's, um, you know, it's a really different and interesting culture. I found the um, the memorial at Nagasaki really emotionally powerful. Um, and I think there's an incredible level of sort of politeness and respect people have. Um, but beautiful, beautiful temples and um, the aesthetics of so much of of the the way they do gardens and buildings, you know, it's it's fantastic. Um, but I'd I'd not experienced too much of their this more natural beauty or the the wilderness areas. Um, I just assumed everything was built up and urban. Uh, and so, particularly on that last trip, I know lots of people go to the ski fields and perhaps experience that as well. But um, yeah, really, the the forests that we walked through were really beautiful. 
Well, uh, like you, Stefan, I, I tend to avoid the big cities now. This is my seventh trip there. So um, I went to Shikoku. And, but anyway, uh, the, the, my podcast extra for listeners is uh, a TV program on NHK, which is the Japanese national broadcaster. And it's called Return to an Abandoned Village. Um, and Stefan, they're suffering massive depopulation in their rural areas. Mm. You probably you know, knew that when you went there. But in this um, program on NHK, which you can you know download if you go to their website, it, it shows a retired fellow who goes back to the very isolated village he grew up in. And the, the village has been abandoned completely, like... A, a lot of those uh, remote places in Japan. And what's interesting about this is that they filmed a, a lot of, uh, they've filmed documentaries about this village over time. So it's a bit like the seven plus series. Mm. Uh, and he goes back there and um, it's very poignant, uh, very, very touching. So, We'll put our um, podcast extra uh, details on our episode notes. But, um, Stefan, it's 50 minutes and uh, it's enthralling. And just to see this old fellow go back and um, they're very much into ancestor worship and just a lot of the customs and people are going back to this village to reclaim it. Mm -hmm. Sounds fantastic. And yeah, I, I've seen, I haven't seen that, but I've seen similar ones in some parts of uh, Europe, um, regional Italy and places like that, where villages have just been abandoned because all the young people have moved to the city and it hasn't been able to be sustained. But there's often an old hermit or some people that that are just resisting the change and live, live there effectively on their own with crumbling buildings all around them. And um, yeah, there's some really powerful stories to be told there um again around you know connection to to something that's been meaningful to you and um you know i've just thought of another one which i've found really powerful uh which is the alone series which is also a netflix a netflix series um and they've had them in various parts of the u.s patagonia and and in Alaska and Canada, um, there's been one down in Tasmania here in Australia as well. Uh, and not only do people sort of grapple with surviving on their own, but um, you know, finding themselves in the middle of a wilderness area and uh, the the lack of social connection is often what does people in just as much as the lack of you know being able to find food. Uh, so I've found that particularly interesting, um, given the sort of work that we do, um, people's connection to to land, to culture, to family and and the roles that that plays in their lives. No man is an island, yes? It has been said, yes. <laughs> but I think we can probably include all genders in that statement these days. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, uh, Stefan, I'm not as with it with as Jess is. Um, St Stefan, you've been a marvellous, marvellous guest. Any thoughts, Jess? Really, really interesting. I think, as I said earlier, this has been a really good education piece and I hope that it goes some way to um, assisting your organisation and, and others similar to it in navigating some of the issues in town planning. And, um, again, hopefully we've been able to educate some of the community around 
uh, the realities of these centres as well. So, yeah, thanks again for your time, Stefan. We really appreciate it and um, hopefully we go a little way to helping you. Yeah, it's uh, been a pleasure and, um, you know, anything that helps break down some of the stigma or the myths uh, is really important for us um, at the end of the day, you know, pe people seeking uh, help for an issue uh, where they're where they experience, uh, you know, respect and support, um, that makes such a big difference to them. So uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Stefan. And, and thanks as always, Jess. Thanks for listening. If you would like to hear more of our podcast, hit the follow button on Spotify or the like button on SoundCloud or the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts. Please also visit our Instagram page, LinkedIn or website for behind the scenes footage of our podcasts and to get the latest on upcoming or recently released episodes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please get in touch via our social media channels or by emailing planningexchange at gmail.com. A special shout out also to Jack Babbage, who does such an incredible job in producing this podcast. <laughs>